Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number six. Whether you're a professional athlete looking to push the boundaries of elite performance or as a coach, performance staff member, or really anyone, frankly, over 40 looking to keep your joints happy, you're going to want to take some notes here today. My guest is Dr. Keith Barr, the head of the Functional Molecular Biology Laboratory at the University of California, Davis, where he studies how the musculoskeletal system functions, including how diet and physical activity affect muscle growth and how tendons and ligaments respond to the stresses of exercise. In this episode, we're going to cover what increases your risk of tendon and ligament injury. How stiff is stiff enough, or perhaps too stiff, sex differences between men and women, and of course the key nuggets here of training and nutrition protocols to support healthy joints and recovery from injury. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Progressive Nutritional who are sponsoring today's show. Consistency is the key to progress in the gym, in your sport, or your favorite activity. Keeping your joints happy and healthy is a vital part of the process, particularly for young athletes and anyone over 40. Progressive Nutritional has your collagen needs covered with two high-quality, pharmaceutical-grade collagen supplements, Complete Collagen and Grass-Fed Whey plus Complete Collagen. Easy to add to smoothies, shakes, gummies, or even a cup of tea, Progressive Nutritional makes it simple and tasty to get your daily dose of collagen before exercise, movement, or rehab. For listeners of the podcast, you can go to progressivenutritional.com. That's progressivenutritional.com. Use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your order. That's progressivenutritional.com. Use the promo code BUBS and save 10% off. All right, let's get going. My conversation with Keith Barr. Enjoy. Keith, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a pleasure. Well, listen, I'd love to uh, kick things off by going back to your university days. You know, working as okay. an SNC coach, University of Michigan. You know, what was that like, and and how do you think you know that experience influenced you down the road? You know, as a scientist, putting things into practice for athletes. Yeah. So, so I think it was really fundamental for what for what I did on a number of different levels so at the time at the university of michigan we were doing a simple program it was a whole body workout every day that you would come in you would do um, one set to failure lots of machine work but then you're using lots of manual work as well so as a strength and conditioning coach i would be called in to to actually be the the weight equipment basically so i'm pulling as hard as i can against somebody who's you know 320 pounds and I'm, I could basically do pull-ups on their arms as I'm trying to do lateral raises with them. But <laughs> it was great because what it showed me is that you didn't need a weight in order to make a muscle get a stimulus to grow. And I actually used sure. that as the foundation for my PhD work, which was actually an animal model of resistance exercise. And all we did was use two different muscles to fight against each other the same way that I was fighting against those players that I was working out. And I use that that general principle of muscle um, muscle on muscle work 
as a way to develop a model that allowed me to get a really big stimulus for growth and, and for strength in one muscle, a moderate one in a different muscle, and then no stimulus in a muscle that's still working hard, but it's not growing. And so coming from that SNC background and using and knowing that it's not about this weight that's on the bar, that that's the thing that's gonna cause the adaptation, that I don't need the bar, I don't need the weight, I can do it in other ways. What I need is that resistance. And then I can understand how I can develop that resistance, how quickly or how slowly, all of those parameters that you go into making a program mm -hmm. were fundamental for me then moving forward, both in my first research that I did in my PhD, and then much later when I started looking at tendons to try and understand how the strength training programs that we were developing, how would they be affecting tendons and, and kind of performance-based things associated with those these tissues that we didn't think were adapting quite as well. It's fascinating stuff. And I mean, you know, at a high performance level, obviously we're solving all these complex problems with a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty. And so this idea of trying to bring an evidence-based model or to, or to think like a scientist is, is crucial. And so I imagine, you know, how for yourself in terms of the background, you know, how did that sort of evolve in terms of your capacity then to problem solve when you're looking at these real world problems with athletes? Basically, one of the reasons that I wanted to be a scientist is because it was all about, I was coming up with the questions and I could determine what question I went after. And that was the difference between me going into medical school or into physical therapy or something else, because there, what you learn is you learn all of these facts. The more facts you have in a smaller area, the more restricted you are, but the best, yeah, I know how to deal with, oh, so these are your symptoms. Then I go through this checklist. The first thing I do is this. The second thing I do is that. Okay, if it's not that, it's not that, then it's got to be this. Mm -hmm. It was just something where here's the prescription and this is what we're doing. And you'd have to do this, then this, then that. And that's not the way that, that I wanted to think. I wanted to think of looking at something and say, why is that happening? And the people who ask why are the, the medical students at most medical um, schools don't like very much because sure. they just want you to know Sitting this the is the room. way it is. Yeah. It's also with strength coaching is the people who are asking why all the time, those are going to be the best strength coaches, but those are going to be the ones who have to fight the hardest because all too often we hear that, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. And I can't think of a more dangerous sentence in any field, then this is how we've always done it. Because the idea behind you know, evidence-based or using or creativity or, or, or altering different parameters and seeing what the outcome is, is that the way that you are doing it might not be right. And if it's not right, that's fine, but let's try and figure out what's right. And it doesn't mean that there's an absolute right but within the context, what's going to work to achieve my goals? Yeah, particularly when we look at different domains where the success rates aren't that high, or maybe the problem rates are very high, like sport and injuries, of course, on the rise. And we've seen, you know, sleep science and nutritional science, recovery science have all really boomed in the last decade and a half. And, and yet we're still seeing, you know, lots of injuries. And the, you know, the progression we often see, or the pattern, let's say, you know, we get SNC coaches getting their athletes strong at the collegiate level, organizations, uh, professional teams, 
And then all of a sudden we're getting into these injuries and the rehab staff, the, the medical staff are then you know, using different forms of, of therapy and of course exercise to get their athletes back to healthy. And then we sort of go back to the model that we had before of how we train the athletes and we end up in this loop. Um, and so I'm wondering what your experience is with that at the collegiate level, at the professional level. Yeah, I've been pointing that out for, for probably 10 years as I go about this and, and that what we're doing and it really came to a head when I was giving a talk at one of the, the IAAF junior, junior um, world championships up in Oregon. And I was giving a talk about how, you know, if you want to increase the health of your athletes because you're getting, say, a hamstring pull at a championship, what you're doing is you're having to combine these different types of loads. Do you do fast loads and you do slow loads? And I had one individual come up who had been a runner at Oregon and she said that's really weird because I never did any slow loading ever in, in my time here and I said yeah you did so no 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 I didn't and I know that this is my program we're always doing these fast loads and I said you ever get injured so yeah and what did you do you went to the athletic trainer and what did you do well we did the heavy slow eccentrics or heavy and I'm like yeah there you go but now what I'm saying is instead of that being two different individuals or two different groups, what you need to do in order for you to have success within a team sport or success within a high performance sport, those people have to overlap because if mm -hmm. you're only doing performance-based moves, you're only going to prioritize performance and the likelihood of you getting an injury goes up. And if you're only going to do protective-based moves and you're only going to be doing health-based moves, well, there's a possibility that at a very high level of sport that your performance is going to come down a little bit. Because there is a trade-off there. And that's the trade-off that it, if we want to improve our performance, we need to increase rate of force development. We need to increase the stiffness in the structures. And we need to do fast moves. Standard strength and conditioning coach will know off the top of their head. Even you know, my daughter is 14. She knows if you lift a heavy weight, that movement is going to be slower than if you lift a light weight. Mm -hmm. So now if we want to do fast moves, we're low weight. Low weight means that there's not gonna be a stimulus for the muscle to be strong, but there's gonna be a stimulus to increase stiffness. So now if we just keep doing that type of loading, at a certain point, the stiffness of the tendon is gonna be greater than the strength of the muscle and we're gonna get muscle pulls. Yeah. The reverse is always obviously true as well. If we're only doing strength work or only doing heavy slow moves, that as we transition and now we're gonna go immediately and do some fast moves, now, the muscle end of the tendon is a little bit less stiff. The, the muscle is big and strong. So now when we do that same movement, now the tendon is having to stretch a lot further. Or in the case where the tendon is stiffer than the muscle is strong, the muscle has to stretch a lot further. Instead of them giving to uh, the ideal high performance, which is both of them give a little bit, mm -hmm. but both of them are protected from injury. And really finding that sweet spot is what all kind of that performance team, athletic training team should be working together to do, to say in this athlete, because this athlete is gonna be different than that athlete, as far as whether they're a sinewy athlete, whether they're a muscle-based athlete, whether they're acceleration athlete or a high-end speed athlete, those athletes are very, very different. So I can't just get one program that's gonna fit all of those different athletes. Yeah, very, very well said and, you know, I think of Andre DeGrasse and Ben Johnson when I think of sprinting of just sort of those two different types of athletes that you talk about there. Um, but maybe before we get to that, circling back to sort of tendons and ligaments in terms of stiffness and laxity, are there some, some general heuristics there in terms of 
how stiff we want things. I mean, you touched on it, obviously the tendons of finding that balance. Yeah, so it's really, really difficult to say, okay, this is the measure of what you want. A lot of track athletes, what they'll do is they will take those years where there's no world championships and there's no Olympic games. And that's their year to figure out what's the maximum they can do. What's the maximum stiffness they can do. They're gonna track everything. They're gonna do all of these workouts to try and maximize stiffness. They're gonna keep doing that and keep doing high performance moves until they feel a little tweak. Oh, I just did a little bit on my hamstring or oh, I just did a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Now what you've got is for that athlete, just dial one step back and that's the maximum you can go. But that's really highly individualized. That's like a, in that type of sport where it's just one movement, we're just gonna run straight, maybe some left turns. That's, that's really what we're doing. It's a little bit easier to do that than in a, a soccer player or footballer. So, so now that individual, there's gonna be a little bump here and there. There's gonna be all these other factors that come into it that increase the risk of injury. And so in those situations, we probably want a little bit of less stiffness. Performance-wise, the reason we want stiffness is that, you know, everybody knows this. If you have a TheraBand, if you have the yellow TheraBand, it's super stretchy, and you put that onto a weight and you pull on it, the weight's not going to move. You're just going to stretch the TheraBand. If you have the blue or the red, which are stiffer and give more resistance, now as you pull, that weight is going to move. And so as you increase stiffness, when your muscle starts to contract, it'll transmit the force to the bone that is trying to move faster. Explosive athletes, jumping, sprinting. Absolutely. We did, a, we did a study with the USA track and field team looking at their throwers. And the number one predictor for their performance was the rate of force development in the legs. Almost every single athlete was that way, even in different throws. So if you're talking about a hammer thrower, never does any kind of bench at all, never does any of these movements versus a, versus a shot putter who does lots of chest-based, lots of power-based movements. Both of them had the same response where increase the rate of force development in the legs, you're going to increase their performance towards the number one rank that year. So what that tells us is the ability to generate force quickly is one of the biggest determinants of, of performance. And so that's why we use that as a measure. When we look at that measure, if we only do heavy weightlifting, that measure is going to go down a little bit. We just published a study in in using our football team here, uh, as well as our rugby team here at UC Davis. What we found is that in the off season, when they did three straight weeks of just their heavy weightlifting, their strength went up about 8%, which was good. They, they're doing really good heavy work, yeah. but their rate of force development, either in a maximal isometric squat or in a, in a counter movement jump, that rate of force development went down in the individuals who were, that's all they were doing. And so that's classic because if you talk to a strength and conditioning coach and you say an athlete's gone away from the summer and all they do is lift really heavy weights the whole summer long, the athlete comes back to you, are they going to be faster or slower? Every single one of your strength coaches is going to say they're going to be slower. And it's not necessarily because their muscle is bigger and they're carrying a heavier load. It's because they don't develop forces quickly because all they've been doing is that heavy strength work. Yeah, it's fascinating. And when we look at, you know, sex differences between males and females. You know, can you walk us through the differences and some of the sort of benefits or, the, or the, how, how the nuances change there? Yeah, sure. So, so again, our tendons and our extracellular matrix, their stiffness is determined by how much collagen there's there. 
and how much the collagen is cross-linked together. So the, the more linked together the collagen is, it's more a tight gel and that gel is stiffer. And so what we had found a number of years ago now is that when we experimentally treated these little human um, ACL ligaments that we make in the laboratory, when we experimentally treat them with high levels of estrogen, the kind of estrogen that a woman would have right around ovulation, two days before and then the day, that four day window there, Mm -hmm. What we see is that the collagen content maybe goes up a, a shade, a little tiny bit, but the strength of the ligament, so the stiffness of the ligament actually decreases. And so what that, and then what we found is that the enzyme lysoloxidase, which is one of the enzymes that adds those little crosslinks, is directly inhibited by estrogen. What we've found since is that testosterone has the exact opposite effect. It doesn't affect, or it actually decreases collagen content a little bit, but it makes the structure stiffer. So now if we look at how that would affect it based on what we've already talked about. So if the if testosterone is increasing stiffness, what you should see is a higher rate of force development. Mm -hmm. We see that in, in men. If it's increasing stiffness, that means that the ligament should be stiffer. So the knee laxity should be lower. And we should see fewer ACL problems or fewer knee ligament problems. And that's what we see in sports. So in, in soccer and basketball, women are two to eight times more likely to rupture an ACL. Yeah. And that's because that eight, the estrogen's decreasing cross-linking so that there's more laxity in the knee, there's more likely that that laxity is going to extend out and cause, cause catastrophic injury to the knee. But then on the other side, you should say, okay, if the tendon is stiffer, then we should see more muscle pulls in men than women. And that's exactly what you see in soccer again, 80% fewer groin and hamstring issue, uh, muscle injuries than in the men's game. So you can explain a lot of these differences based on these two hormonal differences and how they affect the cross-linking of the collagen, the stiffness of the matrix. It also explains a lot of other things like your ability to generate power really quickly. But if you even go beyond performance, you can go into cardiovascular disease. If you cross-link collagen, the aorta is made up of collagen. So what it's supposed to do is supposed to stretch and recoil, stretch and recoil. Well, in men where you've got more cross-linking, it's not gonna stretch as well because it's stiffer. In yep. women, it's gonna stretch a lot better. And so one of the reasons why men have a higher cardiovascular disease is because testosterone is causing cross-linking in that collagen, making that collagen stiffer, giving us a higher blood pressure. In women, you should see lower blood pressure protected from some of the cardiovascular disease, at least until menopause when that's gonna reverse. Yes, it's incredible, the, the sex differences there and the implications, like you say, on the performance side, but then in terms of general health, and if we dial it back to even youth athletics, you know, if I think of our young basketball players at Canada Basketball, you know, we're sort of specializing a lot younger now, and so you've got basketball players playing all year round, and to your point, we're getting explosive, uh, so we're generating a lot of stiffness, particularly in the lower leg, and of course, now when we get to 20, 21, 24, we're seeing injuries that we used to see back when I was watching the NBA 20 years ago in sort of 30 year olds. And so I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, a couple of things is that court time that they're exposed to part of the story here of the increased risk of injury. And, and, and I guess the next question would come around, how, how do we prevent that? So there's a whole lot in there. And the first thing is the, the youth component. And again, my daughter's 14. She's been playing high level sport for a long time. 
And what you always see in kids, especially kids who start to grow, are what we used to call growing pains. We now call enthesotomies, which is basically at the spot where the tendon is joining the bone, there's a lot of pain associated with that. So you get that in the Achilles, mm-hmm. you get that as Osgood Schlatter in the knee, you get other knee pains associated with it. And, and classically, that was like this growing pain type of thing. We use, again, loading, but then we're going to add into there, we're going to add some nutrition in there. We get dietary collagen in there to provide a little bit more of a stimulus, a little bit more of the amino acids that those tendons need in order to really quickly grow at the rate that these kids are growing because, you know, you'll see kids who grow four or five inches in a year. That's a huge stimulus. Your height growth is based on your bones, those growth plates pushing apart. That, that's dependent on collagen. That's the, the thing that's happening is the collagen is pushing apart because you're increasing the collagen content in the growth plate. And then you're mineralizing that collagen to make the bone. The same thing has to happen, obviously, at the tendons, where you're getting this elongation stimulus from the bone. Now your tendon has to grow in length. And sometimes you need to really increase the amount of collagen synthesis you're doing. And we've shown that you can do that by using dietary collagen. So especially in young athletes, that's something that we that we are, are really bringing in. And most of my daughter's in type of, when she starts to get things or her teammates have, within a couple of weeks of a heavier load together with that dietary collagen in, intake, we see that those, those pains go away completely really quickly. Interesting. So that's the first component as far as that growth component. You can support that a little bit using some of these nutritional supplements. And keep quick, quickly there in terms of protein intake, in terms of hitting sort of a daily total and dividing it through the day, would that also provide the proline and glycine that we're looking for to a certain degree to be able to support that? And then the supplementation gives us additional benefit or... To some degree, so so what you're looking at is if, if you're taking in like a dairy-based protein or meat-based protein or plant-based protein, how much of these different amino acids or different substrates you're going to have is going to vary quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. So if you have athletes now who are young who are being, you know, much more interested in a in a cleaner, more vegetarian-based diet, well, they're not going to get any collagen intake in their diet at all because collagen is only made in animals. And so there you might have to look to supplement a little bit more. If you've got people who eat a lot of meat, maybe you don't have to supplement at all because you're getting a lot of that collagen content, which is the gristly bits of the meat, unless you're one that doesn't eat any of any of the stuff you have to chew. And so you, you can modulate this. And the thing with dairy-based protein, like whey that we always use, chocolate milk is a great thing for just increasing this really complete protein. It's great for muscle. It's great for regeneration of muscle. The thing that it does for the connective tissue is very low in glycine. It's very low in proline. The result is that those amino acids actually go down in the period of time after you take, say, a a chocolate milk. And if you need something that's going to support your your collagen growth, if you don't have those amino acids, they could become conditionally essential for a growing individual. That's that's really interesting, yeah, in terms of uh, being able to support young athletes, really interesting application. Yeah. And then as you get older, now you've got this repetitive stress. And if you're only getting that one repetitive stress, because you're only doing basketball or you're only in a throwing sport like baseball, or you're only getting that one movement where you're not adding into that. If you're a baseball player that you then do some tennis so you can do backhands and you can develop other musculature and other tendons within the system. If you're only getting that one repetitive motion over and over and over again, 
and you're not doing any other type of move, you're going to develop and slowly over time, especially with these high jerk movements, and all jerk is is acceleration of the acceleration. So that just means if you do a fast movement, so jerk again, so where I am is my location, the rate of change of my location is my velocity, the rate of change of my velocity is acceleration, mm-hmm. the rate of change of my acceleration is my jerk. So if I'm jumping, all of my power is going down first and then it's immediately hitting the bottom and going up. That switch from going down to going up, big jerk. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna land out of that. There's gonna be a big contact jerk that happens when I hit the ground. If, I, if that's all I'm doing because I'm a volleyball player, a basketball player, structurally, if you look in the knees of volleyball players and, and basketball players, about 80% of them have structural defects. Doesn't mean that 80% wow. of them have knee pain. It's just mm-hmm. that there is the potential to get that. And the higher you go in your level of play, so the more you get from juniors to, to national level to professional level, the likelihood of getting those structural defects actually increases. And it's just because you get tons of high, high velocity moves and if you're not doing anything else, you'll eventually accumulate small amounts of damage. And the issue with small amounts of damage is that our tendons and ligaments are designed so that once you have a little bit of damage, that damaged area doesn't get the signal it needs in order to repair itself. And that's where the real problem comes in. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. Mark here. Just a quick note to let all the personal trainers and SNC coaches out there know I'll be doing a one-day nutrition coaching intensive with my friend, former Canada Strongman, Dane Wallace, all about how to coach your midlife clients in their 40s and 50s and beyond when it comes to nutrition. Clients are busy and stressed. Don't make nutrition more homework for your clients. Learn evidence-based strategies and frameworks to get better results for your clients. Go to drbubs.com forward slash courses to learn more. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Keith. And I definitely want to circle back to how we can, from a training standpoint, start to address that sort of micro trauma. But if we, if we stay on the nutrition side, when we talk about you know, supplementation, nutrients, um, are there other things that coming down the pipeline or that have interest you that might be supportive of connective tissue and tendons, ligaments? So one of the things, so I have a PhD student who... Um, Probably by the time this comes out, she'll be a doctor um, because she's defending uh, this coming Monday. And what she's doing is she's done a lot of the estrogen testosterone work. One of the things that she's been working on is she's been looking at phytoestrogens. So things that you would find in soy like genestin. Mm -hmm. And genestin is interesting because it's a plant compound that looks a little bit like estrogen. And so what it's supposed to do is supposed to bind to one of the two estrogen receptors, not both of them. And what Nketchi has shown is that when you give increasing doses of genestin up to, a, up to a relatively low level, you actually see an increase in collagen content within the tendons or ligaments. Wow. And so that's really exciting. And you see a mechanical advantage as well. So that's really good because that suggests that there are things dietarily that we can do that are going to support increase in the stiffness across certain structures or at least making that structure more robust. We know that things like um, epicatechin, which, are, which you find in dark chocolate, also have a positive effect. And we think it works in a different way. We think that the way that that works is by increasing the amount of collagen mRNA 
where we think that things like genestin or dietary collagen increase the translation of existing messages. And so that's really kind of cool as well, because it suggests that if you put the two things together, you get an even bigger effect. So there's lots of things that we're working on that are coming down the line as far as modulating or, or changing how much our, our tissues make collagen to make these tissues more robust and, and better able to deal with the kind of loading that you would see in an athlete who is really just all about one sport. That's tremendous. And when we talk about dosing, if we circle back to the collagen um, in regards to kind of the size of the athlete, if we're dealing with an American football player, lineman versus a 18 year old basketball player, are we still looking in that sort of 15 to 20 grams of, of collagen range? Or what would you say? What's the evidence base tell us? So right now we would still say 15 to 20 grams, regardless of body mass. We haven't done enough studies to be able to say, look, Body, it does scale with body mass or it doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to get a lot more of that work done right now. I've got some, some people coming into lab and we're going to start doing more of that. It's just a matter of with COVID, everything was shut down for a long period of time. So we weren't able to do a lot of those human studies. So now that we're able to do them again, now we're, we're ramping up again and we're starting to do some of these studies to try and see whether does dietary collagen scale with body size? How much of a difference is there between one individual and another? Even if they're the same body size, if you have habitual eating habits that say you eat a lot of meat, does that mean you digest and absorb collagen better than somebody who's a vegetarian? All of these questions are still really up there to be addressed. If we come back to the question around trying to you know, repair an injured tendon, like you mentioned, and how that, that micro trauma you know, doesn't want to take up the, the load per se, unless you put it in a certain situation. I mean, I've heard you speak about different isometric exercises. You know, is this where performance staff and rehabilitation staff should be focusing on when we're thinking about that return to play? Yeah, I really think that early on, especially, um, even if there's an uninjured individual, if you've got your 18 to 22 year old basketball player and all they want to do is play basketball and that's great and they're going to have that, you need to do things that are going to be able to mitigate some of the plyometric load that they're under. So they're gonna have Achilles, they're gonna have patellar tendon, they're gonna have jumper's knee, they're gonna have these issues that are gonna arise because they're gonna get these micro traumas or these little bit of things where the tissue doesn't perform as well. Okay, and once the tissue doesn't perform as well, if it's weaker, well, the strong part is gonna get all of the load. And we just, we just had a paper come out um, the final version just came up today where basically what my PhD student did is we put a hole in the middle of a rat patellar tendon because that's really kind of what it looks like when we take a basketball player and we look at their knee on an MRI, you can actually see these little holes right at the bottom of the patella. So you have the kneecap here mm -hmm. right underneath it where you, you can imagine it's trying to come to this little very small uh, tibial plateau at the bottom. And so it's narrowing quite quickly and that little area right at the base is where you get a lot of problems with this anterior knee pain or patellar tendinopathy. And what you see is almost a hole. And in fact, a lot of people for years have been saying, treat the donut, not the hole when they're talking about these injuries mm -hmm. because they didn't think you could fix the hole. The hole was going to stay there. Yeah. And we basically just thought of why you were getting that hole. And the reason that we thought you're getting a hole is because if I take a tendon cell and I start compressing it a lot, 
what it's going to do is it's going to stop making the genes that it was making when I was pulling on it, putting it under tension. And it's going to make different genes. And the genes that it's going to make are the genes that you would find in cartilage, because that's what happens to cartilage. It gets compressed. Uh -huh. So one of the things that you have in cartilage are you have these proteins and these, these glycoproteins, protein sugar combination. And what they do is they hold water. Because if you're getting compressed, you want to have some water in there so that it basically decreases the compression. And so if you think about that little area of the knee right at the top, right in the middle of the patellar tendon, as I pull on the tendon and make it skinnier, it's going to actually compress that area. So if I have a little micro damage in there, and instead of it being loaded in tension, now it doesn't feel the tension because the tension is going all around it. But it yep. is feeling compression because the sides are being compressed. And what we found is that when we took um, these rat patellar tendons, we put a hole in it. We did, uh, we did transcriptomics and the transcriptomics were almost exactly the same as you would see in human tendinopathy. Incredible. So we compared it to a former study that was done where we could see that the gene expression changes that they saw in human tendinopathy were almost exactly the same as we saw in the rat. So that was great because that validated using the model. And then we did an exercise and we either did dynamic exercise like running, jumping, and that was basically 360 contractions, but very short. Yep. Or we did four isometrics that were 30 seconds long. And we, we worked it out so that the time under tension was exactly the same. The length of the loading period was exactly the same. The only difference was whether you were pulling and holding or whether you were dynamically pulling and, and relaxing. The ones where we were doing the dynamic load, we looked at gene expression in the, in the injury site. They have more type two collagen, which you would find in cartilage. So basically we're seeing compression when you're doing the dynamic stuff. When we did the isometrics where we pull and hold, the gene that identifies cells as tendon genes, this gene called scleraxis, it went up. Collagen one, the gene that's normally found as the, as the backbone of a tendon, gene expression of that went up. Whereas in the dynamic one, it actually went down in that scarred area. And so what this tells us is that if I've got somebody who's always doing dynamic loading, and I know that if I looked at an MRI, I would see signs of degradation or signs of um, abnormalities within the, within the tendon, within the matrix, what I'm going to do is I'm going to add some isometric exercises. And right now, what, we, what we're suggesting is this program of four times 30 seconds if you've got a known injury. So I would do basically do an overcoming isometric. So a lot of people, I've talked to basketball teams where they're like, I never thought I was gonna bring a, a leg extension machine into our gym ever again. <laughs> and dust it off. Yeah, cause they were all about functional movement for so long now, but injury rate was continuing to go up. Now they brought in this the leg extension. So now you're going to put the pin at the bottom. You're just going to try and do a leg extension. You extend, hold it for 30 seconds. Going to relax for two minutes. You're going to do that four times. That's if you've got a known problem. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to do um, something that's going to prevent injury, I'm going to go out, have my practice, play my game. Then I'm going to come back in and I'm going to do an isometric, one of those extension isometrics on both knees. 30 second hold, bang, I'm going to do that. And what we find is people recover faster after the game because it seems to be helpful for both the tendon and the muscle. Interesting. And they don't develop the same increase in stiffness over time that can lead to further injuries within the structures.
Incredible. And it's amazing how that can be done, you know, during obviously off season, in season, this is going to be complimentary. And like you said, this ideally we should, this should be part of a, a training plan full stop. Now, like you mentioned, in terms of being able to cover all these areas rather than waiting until we have a problem. Exactly. And that's what we talked about at the beginning. Cause if, if the strength coach knows what the athletic trainer is doing, the athletic trainer knows what the goal of the strength coach and the other coaches. Now what you can do is you can coordinate and say, Here's what we're trying, because you don't want to sit there and say, you go to the athletic trainer and they've got this really heavy load that you're doing, these really slow isometrics. And this is at a period of time where the strength coach is doing all this plyometric load to try and increase stiffness, increase performance. If the two individuals who are controlling that part of the training plan don't communicate, don't have that unity in what they're trying to do, you're going to be fighting against each other. One of them is trying to do one thing, which is exactly opposite adaptation to what the other person is doing. You don't know, you know, simple things like providing, oh, yeah, you're going to do this whole big training thing to try and improve some quality of the muscle. And then we're going to stick you into an ice bath or we're going to stick you into a Normatec and we're going to decrease the stimulus that you just did that was designed to have an adaptation. That, that you just basically got rid of all the hard work that you just did on that athlete. So mm-hmm. that's why these things have to be really well coordinated because if I don't know what some other member of the team is trying to do with this athlete, I could negate every bit of the work that they're doing simply by you know, whatever my contribution is. Yeah, it's easy for individuals to get focused on their area, obviously, isn't it? Getting stronger rehabbing and that communication between even if it doesn't feel like trenches or silos it sort of ends up being that doesn't it absolutely absolutely and so that's where the beauty of some of the you know where you see good organizations who are working together really well so i've done a lot of work with uh with these guys lesser tigers for years and rugby team and we've got a, a case study that we're doing right now on somebody who ruptured their their um hamstring muscle because again, as you get into these positions where you're leaning forward at the waist and, and your leg is fully extended, huge opportunity for rupture in there. Yeah. And, you know, surgical repair. So they, you know, they're working with the doctor, they're working with the nutritionist, they we're working with the PT and the strength and conditioning coach. All of them working together, setting up this plan and getting an athlete back from a rupture, surgical repair, getting back in 10 weeks to, to, return to play within the team. And then, you know, first rugby, at, I think it was 10 or 11 or 11 or 12 weeks following surgery. Um, and it's not just somebody who's going to kind of run around in the background, score to try on the first two games. Wow. All of the, that stuff that you get with it. If you can coordinate those things, you can do really impressive things as far as getting athletes healthy again and, and really helping them to recover from any injury, but also recover to a performance level that's going to be at or above where they were before they were injured. And, and those yielding isometrics, if we come back to some of the strategies, you know, are those incorporated alongside the overcoming isometrics to achieve, you know, just what you outlined there, or, or is that a progression? Yeah. So what we would do in that, in, in the case where we have a significant muscle tendon injury, is we wanted to, you know, it was a bit of a back and forth between the surgical team and, and our, our side of things, because surgical team was like five to six weeks after surgery before you move. And we were like, let's load tomorrow. 
So what you have to do is you come to compromise. So we loaded it seven days post-operative. And what we do is we use these, what we call low jerk isometrics. And so what you do is ramping isometric. So you can do it in any position. And basically you just slowly develop force over about a five second period where you slowly are activating the muscle because what we're trying to do is we're trying to minimize jerk. Jerk mm -hmm. is the rapid change in, in, in length of the muscle or the tendon. Mm -hmm. We know both from eccentric loading, if you do fast eccentric load, the rate of muscle injury is higher than if you do slow eccentric load. Same thing is true at the level of the collagen. We can actually denature collagen based on the rate of, uh, of extension of the tendon. So all we're doing is we're slowly moving into the movement so that we're protecting it. We're holding the movement. We're holding the isometric for 20 seconds. We're slowly letting the, the force off. Mm -hmm. We can start those as early as the next day after surgery. In this case, the case that I told you with where we got them back to return to play with return to practice at 10 weeks, that was seven days after surgery to, to get them to the point where they were doing that. That's great. What we can now do is now that we've had it seven days, no, no detrimental effect. And if anything, we got back about a month faster than they were expecting. So now- Incredible. What that does is it buys you a little bit more credibility for then saying, let's try this <laughs> next, time. next time at three days. And then when three days works out even better, then what we can do is we can say, let's start loading, you know, right after or pretty soon after the next day, basically. And Keith, would this concept apply to, to other areas? Like when we talk about, you know, Achilles tendon ruptures, I mean, is this just sort of a, obviously nuances, but. Absolutely. It depends on. If it's a conservative repair where you're not actually surgically repairing it, then obviously you need to leave it in a lengthened position a little bit more mm -hmm. because you're you're counting on just natural process of the collagen being close enough. Yeah. But you do need to get a little bit of load in there fairly early. And again, what we're doing, it doesn't have to be, we're not saying we're going to get in there with a maximal isometric contraction. We're, we're sure. doing a very slow buildup in this athlete. What we said is because Rugby player, big, strong, very, we said no pain. We don't want to feel any pain. So what you want to do is you go up before you feel any pain. Now we're just going to hold it at that level. And then we used a handheld dynamometer so that he could see, okay, that's the, that's how high I went. I went to what, whatever, 50 Newtons, whatever number. Yeah. And now he knows, okay, 50 Newtons is, is healthy. I can do that. Now he pulls up to 50 Newtons, holds that for 20 seconds and releases. Next time he comes in, maybe he's going to do 55, 60. So now he can see the progression. Incredible. We've done it with a pectoralis rupture with an American footballer, ruptured pectoralis back to pro football in seven weeks. So all of these things are consistent across, you know, and the first one I did was a friend of mine um, at the time. She was a 42-year-old woman who ruptured her Achilles. We got her back to running in, in under four months. Incredible. So it has a lot of these, it doesn't seem to matter which tendon, which muscle we've got, the similar properties of what we're looking to do are going to be there, Pretty which is these slow isometric short periods, because the cells adapt very quickly, and then maybe we do it twice a day. So instead of doing a long session of physical therapy, what we're going to do is we're going to do a 10-minute session of physical therapy. In the case of our four 30-second four isometrics with two minutes rest, that's an eight-minute protocol. Yeah. Okay. So we do that at the beginning of the day. We're going to do that at the end of the day. 
now that's all we need to do. Now we're going to move to the next day. We can do it twice again. So those types, of, and then once you move from that isometric, now you can do the isotonic movements. Now you can do all of, it's just a progression from there as you move back towards return to play. You can incorporate the isometrics later in the program, but they're more of a, let's just do them as a way to make sure that we're protecting from that injury so that we're not accelerating too quickly through this, but you can go through a natural progression there. And I hope that that's what this case study that we're doing with Lester, everybody will see the program that they put together as far as here's the transition for, for day seven, we studied the isometrics, here's where we brought in isotonics, then they show you the progression of the whole thing and it's quite, it's quite impressive. It's incredible, yeah, that's, that's something. And Keith, if we circle back to something that we see still a lot, which is on the warm-up side of things, the stretching side of things, we see a lot of obviously dynamic warm-ups these days, but we still get a lot of athletes doing a lot of static stretching and back and forth on when, which should be done and if one's potentially more harmful or to the conversation we had before, potentially detrimental to some of the stimulus that you're trying to achieve. So, you know, in, in terms of static and dynamic stretching as it relates to the tendon, you know, how, how do those things impact? So if we want to get more range of motion through something, the way that we like to do it is with uh, a heavy load move. So, you know, we had, we were working with one basketball player who is quite as, you know, he'd been in the league for a long period of time. He was a high quality athlete or high quality basketball player. I would say not a great athlete. Somebody who had almost no mobility in either the knee or the ankle, just like was stiff as anything, but because of their ability to, to shoot and to do other aspects of the game, they played at a high level. But as they get older, if they don't do something to increase mobility, they're now gonna see more injuries and they're gonna see a, a decline in performance it's much faster. Yeah. So what we did with the, that individual is we started using just simple exercise like a leg press. And the reason we like the leg press is because you control a lot of things. And so now I can put a heavy load on there and I can take him at the beginning when he had almost no heel, heel flexibility and knee flexibility, his toe is right up at the top of the thing. He's gonna do his range of motion. He's gonna come up. And over time, what we're doing is we're moving the toe back. As we're moving the toe down the, down the plate, now what's happening is he's got to get more dorsiflexion in order to complete the movement. His knee is now going slightly over the toe. It's a controlled movement. I'm totally good with that. But now in order to complete those movements, what I have to do is I have to actually, there's a massive contraction of the muscle because it's heavy. Yeah. I'm getting that decrease in stiffness at the muscle end of the tendon. And so now what's happening is his range of motion was improving to the point where people, ESPN was commenting on, like, he's actually moving. Yeah. He got okay. off the ground. Those types of things where you just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This athlete who's been in the league for so long is now actually showing a little bit more mobility. That's the type of thing you can do with the heavy load together with that increase in the joint angle that you need to do in order to complete the movement, mm -hmm. that heavy load is going to decrease the stiffness at the muscle end of the tendon. That's going to give you that increase in range of motion. By going heavy, we're going slower. Yep. That slowness is going to make it so that we're going to get more of this kind of stress relaxation that we're looking for to get load more, more evenly across the tendon. And that means that our tendon is going to be healthier. And so those are the types of things that you do, especially if you're trying to increase um, mobility. 
I don't do a lot of, you know, static stretching doesn't really do a lot for tendon length or stiffness of the tendon. Mm -hmm. The dynamic loading is going to increase the temperature within the body. And as you increase temperature, you're going to get a lot more movement. And that's great for warm up. It's going to preload your, your energy system so that when you start, you're able to create energy well. Warm up is absolutely fundamental. That's great. But we wouldn't necessarily go in and do lot, lots of stretching, whether it's dynamic or, or, or passive, before we do something. We're going to come in afterwards, maybe, and we're going to do some isometrics to maybe increase range of motion so we can do a progressive increase. A lot of what people would do is, is PNF type stretching, where yeah. you, you push, you give resistance, and then you get a little bit more range of motion. You push, you give resistance. We're just going to hold each of those contraction times a for a longer period so that we get more stress relaxation within the tendon so that we get an even load there so that we can get a little bit more stimulus to decrease some of the stiffness within that structure. Yeah, it's inc incredible uh, advancements over the last how many years you've been diving deep into this area to see th these progressions and to see how things are changing at you know, the level of the athlete. And if we, if we circle back to what you talked about with the genetic expression, you know, genetic testing now obviously becoming more popular on the nutrition side, we see you know, specific genes like CYP1A2 for caffeine uh, clearance. And then we also see a lot of associations like the FTO gene. And so as it relates to tendons, you know, are there certain potential markers here that might tell us about an athlete's risk or are we still early days there? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of them, but you don't really need a genetic test for that because by the time you do the genetic test, you already know that your athlete is either prone to injury or not prone to injury. So all you're really doing with your genetic test is you're confirming that, yes, this is the reason that I get so many injuries, or this is the reason why I'm injury free. So there's great work from a guy named George McConey, who is a colleague of mine. He was out of the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and he was the first one to identify that collagen 5 had these different SNPs in its single nucleotide polymorphism. So one base pair of all of these different genes changed and it made the individuals who had one of the one of the variations more prone and the other one was less prone to Achilles tendon problems. He did it with another gene called tenacin as well, where if you had more repeats, if you had 13 or 17 repeats of these two Gs and Cs, you had like a threefold higher likelihood of, of Achilles tendon injury or Achilles tendon rupture. If you had, I think it was 12 and 18, you had significantly lower likelihood of injury. So there's lots of different things that have been identified. There's stress fractures are associated with different polymorphisms in collagen one, for example. So there's a lot that's known there. It's always problematic when you have an athlete because it's not something that an athlete wants. We've had these conversations with different basketball teams for years because they're gonna pay a a big free agent contract, wouldn't it be great if they knew whether it was bad luck that that person kept getting injured or whether there was actually some genetics to it so that the likelihood of them staying healthy is going to be lower. Mm -hmm. The athlete would never go for that because yeah. you're making a contract, you're making a monetary decision based on something that's basically out of their control. And so I can understand from the athlete's point of view that I don't want a team knowing what my genetics are as far as my propensity towards injury, mm -hmm. because 
I, I don't want them to make financial decisions based on what my genes say. But what I would do with that information as a strength coach is I would say, look, you have this, these things that are associated with injury. The reason you're at this level is because they probably actually make you stiffer and make you perform at a higher level at baseline. Mm -hmm. So now what I'm going to do with your training is I'm going to shift your training. I'm going to do your training. Whereas this athlete over here who has different genetics, different injury history, I'm going to do a lot of plyometric, a lot of speed, a lot of other things. With you, I'm going to do a lot of strength, a lot of heavy work so that we can decrease stiffness within the structures. We're going to focus all of our energy on keeping you healthy. Mm -hmm. Whereas in other athletes who don't have the same muscle pull history or tendon problem history or other thing, now we're going to do different types of loading where we can increase the plyometric load and increase the kind of high speed movements that you're doing. And so that's how that I would use it as a strength coach. But as a general manager, I would use it in a different way. And that's why there's a problem there. Absolutely. And, you know, if we if we shift the focus here to, you know, the general public, the coaches, the performance staff, 40s, 50s, 60s, as we're aging, trying to keep the tendons happy. You know, what are some of the nuances there? I mean, obviously, a lot of this seems very applicable um, and easy enough to apply to the general population. Does that nutrition piece become increasingly important as we get to 60, 70 and typically protein intakes going down and, and, and those types of things? What, what do you think there? Yeah, absolutely. So collagen is like, it's the most common protein in your body and the rate at which we make it over time as we get older goes down. And that's why our skin loses some of the, the shape and becomes a little bit more wrinkly. We, we get all of that, these. That and kids. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Because, and the kids give you lack, lack of sleep. sleep. Yeah. Lack of sleep gives you a decrease in growth hormone. Lower growth hormone means lower IGF-1, which results in a decrease yeah. in collagen accumulation within the tissue. So, so there is, it's yeah, all connected. It's a pretty straight line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's all connected. So, so all of that is telling us that we're getting these things. We know from like the people who do, who, who run these aging clinics, oh, they all want to put people on growth hormone. One of the reasons is because of how it's controlling collagen content and collagen turnover within the body. And so that's, that's got a beneficial effect. And so if we can do that with things like um, genestin, which I was mentioning earlier, and dietary collagen, which is going to increase our ability to produce collagen, there's a potential there for it to have a beneficial effect that's even potentially greater as we get older than when we're younger. Or at least the old and the young benefit a lot ones in the middle probably benefit a little mm -hmm. because when you're in that 20s to, to 35 range you're not the the beneficial effects are are less because you've got optimal loading you've got all of these other anabolic structures that are optimized yeah when we're really growing really fast or when we're reaching kind of going towards that other Black side of sleep things, mode yeah yeah that's when that's when these these shifts occur and, and we become more dependent on some of these external signals. Well, that explains a lot. I got three small kids at home. And so it definitely, uh, definitely resonates. Uh, listen, I appreciate you, you, your, your time here, Keith, you know, if we again, kind of zoom back out to 30,000 feet, like at the start of the conversation and look down the road at the evolution of, of research, I mean, you've sort of alluded to a few areas already, but you know, what gets you excited in this space and what might be coming down, down the road? Yeah. So Lots of different things are happening. So we've got, for the first time, there's potential for a, uh, a vegetarian collagen because there's a company that now makes it recombinantly in bacteria. 
they put in the genes. And so we're going to be testing that in, in the not so distant future. We're looking at the role of caffeine, because when we use caffeine in the laboratory and we put it into media with our cells, we can decrease collagen synthesis. When we put it in with our little ligaments, we can decrease the mechanics of the ligaments. So now what we want to know is whether is that real or is that just an artifact of our model? So we've got mice running that we're collecting next Tuesday and Thursday, where they've been with or without a running wheel, with or without caffeine, so that we should see a pet beneficial effect of running on collagen content and mechanics of the, of the Achilles. The question is going to be what happens when we add caffeine to that, both at rest and as a function of exercise. Are we going to see a, a drop in collagen content and, and mechanics, which would then say maybe your pre-workout supplement shouldn't have a, a boatload of caffeine in it if that's going to potentially affect negatively these adaptations. So, so those things are there. We've got a lot of other things that are coming down the road. You know, again, developing the genesis idea, looking for other nutrients that can actually stimulate the production of collagen so that we can find different nutrients that we have no idea should affect it. So we're doing natural product screening where we look for at natural products that you'd find in many foods to see whether any of them can stimulate collagen synthesis. So, so there's a lot of different things that we could potentially put together into a, a product that would be optimized for, for increasing the production of collagen. That's a fascinating area with the, obviously the applications in, in sport and then in general population. So, you know, really appreciate your, your time here, Keith. Where's the best place for people to stay connected with you and, and your lab and, and all the work you're doing? Yeah, so, so obviously they can look on PubMed for any research. I have a Twitter account that's at Muscle Science, so people can follow a little bit about what's going on there. And if, if anything, we publish all of our papers as open access so that everybody can read them for free. But if there's anything in the old days that, or in, in other journals where they don't have access, they can just email me based on, or DM me through, through at Muscle Science, and I'll be able to send out the, the paper to them that way. Incredible. And, and just on a personal note, to wrap things up in terms of yourself, collagen dosing, is there a certain protocol that you like to follow in terms of preventative or to support whilst you're recovering from training or life? Yeah. So I do a collagen supplement. I do basically, I, I make gummies. Um, I make it with uh, the Tarani, those little syrups. I, I use their sugar-free syrup. Nice. Um, that way I can get 15 grams of, of, of dietary collagen without a big caloric load. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'll do that in the morning because I usually will run in the morning. So as I'm getting ready, before I get ready, I'll go, go to the fridge, grab a handful of, of gummies, eat those while I get ready. And then by the time I'm out and running that way, I get, you know, the full beneficial effects of those. Incredible. Uh, yeah, definitely a nice way to, Nice way to do it. So uh, appreciate appreciate the time. Appreciate you sharing all the, all the tremendous work and insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care.
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.